support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Grand, downtown Ellsworth's historic theater, presenting native Jude Johnstone Friday, November 3rd at 7.30 p.m. Tickets and information at grandonline.org. The Grand is a nonprofit organization. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about congestion and transportation planning in Acadia National Park. We're lucky to have Acadia National Park, this national treasure right here in our backyard in Maine. But in recent years, the high volumes of people accessing both the park and surrounding Mount Desert Island towns during the summer and shoulder seasons has caused increased traffic and overloaded parking lots. For both locals and visitors, the congestion is having an impact on the quality of their experience. It seems everybody agrees something has to be done to better manage the movement of people, cars, and buses in Acadia. Today on Coastal Conversations, we'll be diving into these issues with two people who are deeply engaged in helping explore solutions. With me in the studio are John Kelly, who's the Management Assistant at Acadia National Park. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me. And we also have Martha Searchfield, who's the Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Hi, Martha. Hi, thank you for having me. Great. Thanks so much to both of you for coming. Um, This is a pretty complex issue, but also a very passionate one. Um, People in Maine and our listeners care so deeply about this park. Everyone has a personal connection to the park, and everyone wants to both protect the quality of the experience that they have, but also the quality of the park's natural resources. And you two are in the middle of it, representing, in John's case, the park itself, and in Martha's case, the Bar Harbor business community, which of course relies on the park for so many, in so many ways. Um, so before we jump into the issues specifically related to transportation planning in Acadia and, and the congestion issues that we've been hearing more and more about in the last couple of years, um, I just wanted you guys to introduce yourselves to the listeners. Um, so maybe let's start with John. You've been with the Park Service for a while. Tell us a little bit about how you got there and what you do. Yes, that a while has uh, somehow turned into 30 years, but I've been uh, very happily at Acadia for 17 of those. I uh, started my Park Service career in Yellowstone National Park, um, but I came east from uh, there to be closer to home, and I've made home now here in Acadia for and Bar Harbor for 17 years. Great. And what's your role? 
at Acadia? My role at Acadia uh, is to really support all the operations and, and planning for the park. I work for Superintendent Kevin Schneider and uh, currently leading for the park the transportation plan. Great. Thanks, John. And Martha, you are the director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. You are also an inn owner in Bar Harbor. You own the Canterbury Cottage. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to the work that you do. Um, sort of by happenstance, a little bit. I got involved with the chamber through my inn. I served on the board of directors. And then after about 10 years, I was looking to make a change. And then this position came open. I applied. So it wasn't a completely direct path to the job, but I'm very glad I am in it, and I love it. Great, great. Um, if you're hearing any noise, we're just shuffling around um, some mics, and we'll um, jump right in. So, um, how, how long have you been? How long have you been with the chamber? I've been um, in this position as executive director for a year and a half. Great, but you've been a business owner for a long time. Uh, in this job, I mean, my, as an innkeeper, yes, since 2006. Great, great. So uh, we have some folks today in the studio who um, have a pretty good fix on the situation that's happening on the ground um, on Mount Desert Island and in Acadia. So um, let's jump right in. And for those of you who are listening, there are um, later in the show, we will open up uh, the lines for some conversation and questions from all of you. But let's wait for a little bit and get a little bit of the backstory first. Um, so, John, give us a sense of uh, what the visitation is now in the park and how that's been changing in the last few years. Sure. I, I would love to do that. First, I want to just uh, respond to the comment that you made about the town relying on the park. And what I really want to emphasize is that that relationship is mutual, and it's not just Bar Harbor, but it's all the parks that surround, all the towns that surround the park. Uh, you, you know, some western parks are so large and so distant from communities that hotels, restaurants, even gas stations have to be built within that park, which, you know, in effect takes away from the resources. But here in Acadia, we have the great benefit of having all those services that support the millions of visitors that we have outside of the park. So that relationship is very much uh, mutual and two-way, and uh, it's, it's a good one with all the communities that we have. So our, our visitation, um, all those visitors uh, do rely on the services that are provided by the communities and, um, and get to enjoy the park without those disturbances in the park. We've, uh, in the last uh, 10 years, seen about a 60% increase in visitation so that uh, last year and this year, we see record visitation. 2016 was a, an important year for not only the National Park Service, but for Acadia, and both uh, the agency and the park celebrated its uh, their centennials. And that really was coinciding with the highest visitation we've ever seen in the park. Um, the number of visits that we received last year, about 3.3 million is um, on par with this year. So we're definitely experiencing that, that high point. And um, Martha, let's, let's turn to you. And John, I, I, um, that's a really interesting comment that you were making related to sort of the interconnectedness between Acadia and the surrounding communities, which, which does seem to be really different from other parks, perhaps the big ones out west especially. Mm -hmm. um, and Martha, as someone who's been a business owner in the community, what do you... What, Talk about that relationship for you a little bit. I do think it is uh, a mutual relationship, very much so. 
because of the nature of this park, it has a very porous border. I mean, Bar Harbor and Acadia, they bleed right into each other. So I do think it's a very important relationship, and I think it goes hand in hand. Part of the Chamber's job is that we, we go out to promote and tell the story of Bar Harbor to get people to fall in love with it and choose to come take a vacation here. So when we go to the travel shows, when we do all those sorts of things, we hear all the time that the Bar Harbor and Acadia are referred to sort of inseparably. Like there's no divide sort of between Bar Harbor and Acadia, that people think of it as one place. That's interesting. Um, and and how, what's the relationship between the two, between the chamber and the business community and the park? How do you guys work together since the public perception is that it's so interconnected? Um, how, how's that relationship? How does it work? Well, from our perspective, we try um, to share when we get information or share information about what's going on in the town, what the businesses are thinking. Whenever there's, you know, public comment, we encourage our businesses to participate and let the park know what we're thinking, what, you know, the businesses need. So I think that's a very uh, sort of back and forth relationship. Um, we are conducting a little survey right now, and that information I will share with the park when we get the end of the results. So that type of thing is how the chamber sees the relationship with the park is very uh, informational sort of yeah and what's really significant is that it's a it is really a community and you know martha and i see each other on the streets when we go out so there's not only a professional but there's a personal relationship between a lot of the the park staff and the community business owners and the, and the chamber members um, the park is a member of the chamber um, and other chambers and uh that relationship is is critical because we we not only share the information but we we support each other in different ways as i mentioned um, all all the amenities all the services that our visitors come to to use are outside the park and um the chamber in return has uh, acadia as a as a resource to promote and market and bring people to the, the to the area and why do you, both of you, why do you think that the visitation has been on the rise? I think it's a process that actually began 10 or 12 years ago, really after September 11th happened. And I don't, people I don't think remember, but there was all sorts of promotions about, you know, staycations, find your own backyard. And then with the Obama administration, when he chose to take his family vacations in national parks, I think a ball was set in motion to encourage Americans to get out and explore their national parks. So I think it has been building. I don't think there was one moment or one thing that changed that. And I think that's why the increase in visitation to national parks has been happening. Absolutely. It's a sort of a mix of... Uh activities and, and circumstances, the, you can say it's the economy, um, but there are very specific efforts to market, um, both by the chamber and the towns, uh, but also the uh, Maine State Office of Tourism has, uh, you know, definitely focused on bringing people to Acadia and, and the rest of the state. And the National Park Service itself uh, celebrated the centennial of the agency in 2016, and leading up to that, there was a a uh, very specific program called Find Your Park, and people have found Acadia, <laughs> in addition to those who had already found it. Um, 
uh, and in addition to that centennial, the agency centennial, we also have the Acadia National Park centennial. And we had with uh, Friends of Acadia, uh, an Acadia Centennial Task Force that not only sort of identified um, Acadia as a place to go today, but also uh, better ways to, to visit and use the park, and then looking also into the future of how they can continue to support the park. Actually, uh, to follow up that, one of the about better ways to use and, you know, things to do in the park and the relationship, we publish a guidebook for the whole area, the Bar Harbor and Acadia area that has about a 200,000 print run. And the park is rewriting their content for us so that we are promoting how they are expanding the areas they want people to go to and introducing people to new areas and stuff like that. So that's an example of uh, how we are yeah. working in conjunction to make sure everybody does have a great experience here. Yep, and that's definitely mutual, and we appreciate the, the chamber allowing us to have these m multiple pages in their guide that helps uh, us communicate to visitors uh, how to best use the park. Uh, in turn, on our website, we have links to uh, the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce and all the chambers in the area so that we have that mutual exchange of information. Do you have a sense of how um, the increased visitation in Acadia compares to other national parks um, and, and sort of a, a fix on sort of tourism trends in general to areas like Acadia where natural resources are really at the core? Well, with the National Park Service Centennial in 2016, uh, there has been a, a, an increase in visitation across most national parks, and uh, a number of national parks are, are seeing record visitation just as Acadia is. And it, again, it's going back to what Martha said, uh, what's true for Acadia is likely true for all the national parks in terms of marketing, um, the staycation concept, and just general trends in, in visiting parks across the country. It's it's hard for me to picture sometimes the effects because when I've been out west to some of the national parks out there, I've been around Bar Harbor Acadia my whole life. They're so big that it's it's hard for me to see the impact of increased volume of people visiting, increased traffic, like I can see it in Bar Harbor. I mean, it's hard for me to think of the one place I would go in the Grand Canyon on a day in the summer and be like, oh, wow, everybody's here. So it's it's hard for me to judge that other than seeing the numbers and stuff that come from the parks and that everybody's experience this increase. One way that we're, Acadia is different than other national parks for the most part is that we have an incredible return rate. Mm. And that says a lot uh, for the, the, the towns and the chambers work and, and the park itself. More than 50% of our visitors have been to Acadia at least one other time and many of those have been here annually for, for since childhood. And they're, they're now bringing their kids. And so that, that generational uh, interest in the park is, is being passed on. So that, that return rate gives both the, the chamber and the park an opportunity to uh, inform and educate visitors. Because once they come, they're new, they're learning. But the second and third and fourth years, they really know what they're doing and, and they can be educated and, and learn about ways, to, different ways to use the park much more easily than people are only going to, say, Yellowstone once in their lives. It's their one shot. But here, we have an opportunity to, to get that message out. And do you guys have a sense of how those trends um, compare between visitors who are coming 
from out of state to visit Acadia versus locals. And I'm thinking, for example, I know the Park Service last year did the fourth get fourth graders and their families into the park. And my kid was happened to be a fourth grader last year. And it was a really big deal for her and her classmates. Um, so it it sort of that has a ripple effect in communities and towns and families um, in terms of their desire to visit the national park when your kid comes home and says, we got to do this thing. Um, so what, what's your fix on comparing trends of visitation from out-of-state visitors versus people from Maine? Um, it's a little bit hard to judge because of the fact there's not one check-in point really for the park. So it's not as if you're there's one place where you're able to count every visitor, every car, where it's from, that type of thing. I have found over the course of this past year, the Chamber is very fortunate that a lot of people send very p- nice notes to the Chamber about how much they love the park, how much they loved coming to Bar Harbor, the experience, they can't wait to come back. And I've also gotten a lot of phone calls from people that I call within the one-hour range who have called and said, you know, my wife and I drive down every Sunday for lunch or that type of thing. So it's it's hard for me to say because I have no way of knowing how many of those people exist who live in Bangor but have a favorite trail and they come down every Sunday morning, they hike, maybe have breakfast, and then they go back home. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to account for uh, those people. And, and from... The National Park Service surveys that we've had, while there's there's, there's some error in it, you know, we generally know that um, there's quite a bit, and the majority of our visitors are from the Northeast. And you can see that in license plates during the summer. Um, and so we have a high degree of uh, Northeastern visitors and primarily from suburban or urban areas. Interesting. Um, so these numbers are probably going to keep going for a while. Um, and let's let's switch gears and talk a little bit about um, what that what the numbers mean um, for the community and for the experience in the park. Um, what are some of the challenges that present themselves? Well, I think the real challenge for Acadia National Park is uh, a good a good thing in the sense that it, it is very popular and, and more and more people are coming to experience the national park and enjoy the the main communities like bar harbor uh, but there are times and locations where there are more vehicles in particular than there is capacity on the road in the parking lots and that does not only deter from the visitor experience in terms of how they're spending their time and what they come to enjoy but also begins to get into safety issues when congestion prevents emergency vehicle access or the the road is too small to be shared by bikes, buses, and cars, and, and those conflicts you know, may create uh, safety concerns. So the Park Service is beginning to address that through a transportation plan that we initiated in 2015. And we're looking at ways and strategies to relieve those those uh, those congestion and, and parking issues so that people can better enjoy the park and, and resources can be better protected. How about from the business community in it's, town? It's very much the same in Bar Harbor. We definitely have congestion. We have a car problem, a parking problem. Visitor Visitorship has increased, but our streets haven't gotten wider and we haven't acquired more land in Bar Harbor. 
So I think it's a good problem to have, but I do think it's a problem that, like the park, looking at their transportation plan, I think the town of Bar Harbor also has to take a hard look at how they manage congestion and cars. I don't think it's something that they've really ever done. I definitely think there's a solution and that things could be managed much better. We have a great one great public transportation system, Down East Transportation, the Island Explorer. But in the peak times, they've also reached their capacity. They need to grow too. So I think we're in a transition period where there's all solutions ahead of us and everyone has identified that we have a congestion problem and now it's just figuring out how can we manage this. And this this concern goes back decades actually. Uh, it was as early as the 1990s when the, the Park Service identified you know, congestion in certain areas and safety issues as a real management concern. The Island Explorer, as Martha mentioned, uh, an incredible bus system run by Down East Transportation Incorporated was uh, initiated in 1999 as a community and park uh, cooperative effort. Uh, the state of Maine uh, Department of Transportation has been a key role in playing uh, in supporting the operation of that, as has Friends of Acadia and L.L. Bean. Uh, that service has been a remarkable success and has been noted across the country among other national parks as a model uh, transportation system. I just spoke to the superintendent of Adams National Historic Park uh, yesterday down in Boston looking for uh, examples of how we operate our transportation system. But as Martha said, um, that too is now at times reaching capacity and the transportation plan has to come up with strategies that uh, not only supplements and expands that system but also supports it with other management actions. It's funny you say the early 90s <laughs> because I've been told since I've been in this job that parking problems have been discussed at town council since the late 60s. So I think it is a problem that everybody has been aware of for a very long time. And it seems like now it's sort of in a coming to a head um, time, right? So I feel like we've heard in the media closures of some of the popular destinations when they overcrowd. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what happened this summer? How did this summer go in terms of closures at Cadillac and maybe Jordan Pond House and other areas? Yes, there, there have been uh, actions that we've taken that have uh, closed uh, Cadillac Mountain in particular. And this is really tied back to the transportation plan. When we began in 2015, we started with uh, a, a round of public meetings that took in input from the communities and from others about what they saw as the issues and what solutions they, they could see uh, it, to address the problems. So in that time, we've, uh, the Park Service has also been taking certain, certain actions to sort of test the waters and, and see what it takes to manage uh, sort of the worst-case scenarios in the park in terms of congestion. We had car-free mornings where we closed the Park Loop Road to uh, support uh, pedestrian and, and bicycle use. We tried that for as a pilot project for a couple of years. We have since um, curtailed that. Uh, the other actions we started uh, last year were to close the, the top of Cadillac Mountain when congestion backed up traffic to the Blue Hill Overlook, which is about a quarter mile from the, from the top of the summit. Uh, this year, we closed it about 80 times due to congestion. 
and that allowed uh, traffic to clear out, and those closures lasted anywhere from <coughs> an, uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And at the bottom of the mountain where the ranger had closed off uh, traffic, we took rough counts of the number of people who were turned away. So um, it was a pilot uh, approach. We had uh, the support of <coughs> Friends of Acadia's uh, Summit Steward staff. We had extra uh, Park Service employees to sort of monitor the situation on top of the mountain and report down down the mountain to the rangers. The closures, uh, again, were a way of understanding how we could manage the traffic and, and sort of what impact we, we would get from having that closure. This feels like a really important distinction to kind of emphasize that, if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the 80 or so closures that happened on Cadillac weren't because suddenly in 2017 the numbers had catapulted at such a dramatically higher rate than previous years, but it was the Park Service experimenting with management options. Exactly. We, um, we could have probably been doing this for years in the past, especially at uh, sunrise and sunset when there were really peak times when literally the 150 or so parking spaces uh, were handling 300, 350 cars. And at that point, there's just no place for people to park other than literally on the road, um, side by side, and creating basically a single lane of access to the mountain. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations. This is Natalie Springle, your host from Maine Sea Grant. We're talking about transportation planning and congestion issues in Acadia National Park and its impact in surrounding communities on Mount Desert Island. My guests in the studio today are John Kelly, who's the management assistant of Acadia National Park, and Martha Searchfield, the director of the Bar Harbor Chamber. Um, If you have questions or comments for our guests about any of these topics, uh, we'd love to invite you to call in. Um, The toll-free call-in number is 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. While we're waiting for calls, I just want to say that the transportation plan is continuing. We had a second round of public input on some preliminary concepts last November 2016, and uh, the public and stakeholders should expect to see another uh, round of public input on the draft alternatives for the plan in spring of 2018. And uh, if We'll we'll be putting out information on how people can come and participate in public meetings and review the document around that time. Great. Um, And how do people comment? Well, even now, uh, people want to get some details. Uh, We have two newsletters and some other information on a website. The easiest way to get there is to go to the Acadia National Park official page. And on that home page, there's a link to transportation planning and You'll get all the information we have out in the public on that website. Great. Um, Martha, so John was just explaining about closures and why some of the closures have been instituted this past year um, to parking at the top of Cadillac. Uh, what do you? What's the business community um, that you represent sort of seeing in town? Um, and also, what are you hearing about from your members in relationship to the congestion that's happening in the park? Um. I think a lot of our members feel that downtown Bar Harbor is pretty much maxed out on cars on, you know, any given day over the course of the peak season, which we also have to acknowledge is part of the increase in people visiting 
is that the season has expanded. We are no longer a town that opens on Memorial Day and closes on Labor Day. We really started to see visitors this year about the first week of April, and you can track it right to the fact that schools in New York, Pennsylvania, that's their spring break. So all of a sudden you see all these families in town, and then it goes right through to October. So I think that also is a piece of the increased visitation to the park. And it's a it's an increase to the business downtown. I mean, the businesses, we had another very successful year, but I think everybody would agree that we have got to face this car problem head on. I mean, our uh, National Park Service interest is in how we can best accommodate the number of people that are coming and the management or the transportation plan will address it from that standpoint is how we can improve that experience. Let's hear from one of our callers. We have um, Tamara, hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right, from Monroe. Hi, Tamara. Tamara. Tamara, thank you. What's on your mind? Pamela. Oh, Pamela. Okay, great. Thank you. My concern is that every parking lot in the park could be increased with maybe not asphalt, but um, certainly there are other materials that are kind of softer and there could be more parking spots in every single parking lot. I mean, how many acres are in Acadia? We have about 35,000 or okay. approximately half of Mount Desert Island is is. Well, I was parked. thinking in each parking lot that is a part of Acadia, there could be larger parking lots easily. I mean, taking some trees down isn't that much of an issue when there are still so many beautiful parking lots in the area. That's just my concern, my wish. Thank you. I was there. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your call, and sorry for butchering your name. What do you guys think? What about the option of um, increasing the available parking, I think, is the, the idea that's being proposed? Well, uh, of course, the National Park Service's mission is uh, to to protect resources and uh, also provide for their enjoyment uh, by the public. So it is a challenging mission to accomplish when one seemingly conflicts the other. So we have actually taken steps to maximize the efficiency of our parking. We have taken areas uh, that were already parking and increase the capacity by way of reconfiguring and uh, uh, sort of providing more capacity in, in the, roughly the same amount of space. We've done that at Hull's Cove Visitor Center. Uh, we did just recently improve the parking areas at Jordan Pond House, another sort of problem area for, for congestion. And that is definitely part of the equation, um, but is not the primary um, a, a way of going about that. We want to look at other ways to uh, provide for public access without impacting resources. The other important part of um, what we protect is the historic Park Loop Road, and that in itself is a historic resource that we don't want to change the character of by adding parking or, or more pull-offs and so forth, um, because we'll will destroy the very thing that people are coming to enjoy. It's a delicate balance. I also think it speaks to uh, the fact that Acadia is unique in that it is a park that is not contiguous. 
And so sometimes accessing the park in different areas may mean people are parking in a town and walking mm-hmm. into park land. So in terms of just creating parking lots, it's not necessarily that Acadia can actually just do that. And and back in, uh, I mentioned this issue was identified the park service in our general management plan back in 1992. And that plan recognized the potential for ever chasing the demand of parking by increasing the parking lot sizes. And we, in that document, you know, we set up a policy where we would not do that because then you sort of have an open-ended issue of how much parking to provide as demand increases. Uh, Let's go to Frank in Lemoyne. Frank, hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm going to take another position on parking lot. I think it's time to to, uh, grasp the parking lots back in and go to a bus system in the park. No cars in the park. No car. I'm, I'm a real car guy. And I've been in the park for 45 years and worked in the park in 75. We need buses in the park, not the big, you know, buses from the cruise ships. But that's really funny. The elephant in the room, nobody's mentioned it. Um, you know, the air quality of the park since the mid 80s, at least a couple hundred days a year, is below U.S. standards. And now we've got more air pollution from the cruise ships going into the park. And I don't know, nobody's done an impact statement. So I don't know how many. When a cruise ship stuff sits out there all day long, and for the 10 hours they're hanging out off the Bar Harbor and, and polluting the air, and when it goes into the park, I have no idea how many cars that equates to. But I don't think we need cars in the park. I was in Zion in 2012, and it's strictly a bus system. And the parks are, are talking about reservation systems, which is kind of really a a pain, but I can understand it. But now you got to wait an hour and a half in line, from what I understand, to get on a bus in Zion Park. But the bus system's the way to go, period. And why hasn't anybody talked about the elephant in the room? The Great. people, the, the pollution that comes from those cruise ships that goes into the park. Great. And everybody talks about parking. I have not one time, and every time I go to Bar Harbor, which is not as much this year because it's so crowded these days, I never had a problem finding a place to park. They have to ride around a little bit and find a place to park? Yes. But if you start building parking garages downtown Bar Harbor, which I'm sure there are proponents for that, you're going to get more people, more people, more pollution. We, I hate to say it, but most people who live in Maine are on board with knowing that the park is way oversaturated. But I don't know how you can't keep people from coming when they want to come, that's for sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call, Frank. You brought up some some really good points that we'll ask these guys to touch on. Um, So uh, that was Frank from Lemoyne. Thank you. Um, So no buses in the park um, and cruise ships. Let's start with no buses in the park for a minute. And maybe this is an opportunity to talk about a couple of the alternatives that are being explored through the transportation planning process. Actually, I heard Frank say no cars in the park in lieu of having yes. a, a bus system. Um, yes, thank you for that clarification. Something John. like yeah. the uh, an all-island explorer access. That is a consideration at this point in the transportation plan, and, and that is something, a, a great example of uh, something that can be uh, commented on uh, online or uh, in other ways through public meetings if that's uh, something that is important to 
to listeners. Um, there are challenges, of course, with every alternative we propose, and, and that's, uh, that's the process, the, the three-year process that we're going through, which includes an environmental impact statement to assess uh, all the uh, impacts of the proposed uh, management strategies uh, will be part of the plan. So there's there's all kinds of alternatives that the park is in exploring, including um, having only uh, transportation within the park that isn't car-based. So um, it sounds like it's worth looking at, at those alternatives. Um, before we go to our next call, um, we um, Martha, did you have any thoughts on Frank's call related to either cruise ships or um, minimizing the cars in the park? Um, actually, what I wanted to comment on is there is no plan to build any parking garages in downtown Bar Harbor right now. That is not something that is being considered. And I think, and I think this was a study that was done by one of, na one of the national parks of how much damage cars versus bus do to the environment in the park. And cruise ship passengers do not bring their cars. So I think that should be kept in mind. And there's a lot of mixed information out there about cruise ships and pollution, you know, and the environment. And there is no definitive, you know, explanation for which is better, which is worse, more cars, you know, versus a cruise ship. That's It's just a big gray area. And cruise ship business is important to the town of Bar Harbor. So I think we should keep it in perspective. Thank you. Uh, let's hear from Alvian. Hi, Alvian. Welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Natalie. You've got a good group there with uh, Martha and uh, John. Uh, just another comment on the extent of the Cadia National Park. Of course, we have one in Isla Ho, accessible through Stonington, and there's Scudic. And then I represent Down East Acadia Tourism, and we use Acadia uh, National Park and Bar Harbor as a magnet. And, and, of course, revel whenever it's overcrowded because that means people will go other places. And we do have beautiful Fort Knox and the Penobscot Narrows Bridge on one end, you know, a bunch of state parks, and Roosevelt Campobello International Park on the other end. And if you go far enough, you know, if you've got the time and a passport, you know, Fundy National Park in Canada. So you can really spread out the, the time that people spend in down east uh, Maine and, and use Bar Harbor Ellsworth as a central locus if you want or move around but uh, I want to thank John and Martha for the good work they do uh, accommodating um, that big flow of uh, visitors that we get and thank them for you know the work they put into it. Thank you Alvin. Thank you Alvin. Thank you Alvin. Uh, so Alvin just made a plug for using Acadia as an anchor but then encouraging people who find the congestion uh, problematic to move throughout the rest of the region. So that certainly seems to be a good option. Um, I think we have another caller, Jim in Trenton. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I was wondering if any of the panel could comment on the status of the Trenton Visitor Center. Um, this, I think, was intended to help alleviate some of the parking problems. It was intended to allow expansion of the bus system. Um, the Construction is currently on hold. I don't know if that has to do with the State Department of Transportation or not, but I would like uh, any additional information on that and its status. Thank you. Great. Great question. Thank you so much, Jim. So the status of the Trenton Visitor Center. John, can you bring us up to speed? Yes. The, the, the center in Trenton, as we call it, the Acadia Gateway Center, 
uh, a portion of that has been successively uh, developed in, in the first phase of that project, providing a, a home to Downey's Transportation and the Island Explorer bus system has been completed. That was done in 2012. What's left to be done is the Transportation Hub and Visitor Center for Acadia National Park and Regional Tourism. That is still in play and, and very much a part of the consideration of the transportation plan. It has been on hold uh, due to a, a lack of funding for that construction of the building, but it is also part of the planning process so that we can understand how to best use that site in conjunction with uh, con uh, managing traffic and, and vehicles on the island, both uh, private vehicles and commercial buses. So that is in play. Um, again, in the transportation plan, you'll, you'll find it as part of the draft alternatives uh, and something that uh, folks should comment on in terms of what they see that future site use as. Great. Thank you, John, for that update on the Visitor Center in Trenton. Um, so uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU Community Radio. Uh, this is Coastal Conversations, and we're talking today about congestion and transportation planning in Acadia National Park and the surrounding communities of Mount Desert Island. Um, really appreciate all the calls we've been getting and invite anyone who has questions or comments to call in at 1-866-625-9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. Um, I believe that we have a caller, R.W., on the line from Orono. Hi, R.W. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, in, in just about anything we do in life, I think it's helpful to have a plus column and a minus column. Uh, what are the benefits and what are the impacts of uh, various things that are happening? Um, having flown for two of the area's uh, aerial scenic outfits, Scenic Flights of Acadia and Acadia Air for several years, I know that the uh, cruise ship traffic was always sort of a uh, conundrum because uh, one outfit, we had a, a van that we got specially to to go and pick up tourists and bring them back to Trenton to fly, and then we'd have to take them back down again to meet their ship. And it was kind of 50-50 as to how much the proposition was really worth. And um, largely that was because um, most of the folks getting off the cruise ships don't have any transportation arranged, and they're pretty much bound into Bar Harbor. So you've got on the one side, you've got a lot of, extra sales going on at Bar Harbor when those cruise ships land. But on the other side, you've got a lot of impact in the area uh, environmentally, uh, the ocean, the land, the air from those cruise ships. And um, are the surrounding areas outside of Bar Harbor really profiting that much from those cruise ships? So that's what I would like to hear in any kind of studies being done is, is um, who's reaping the benefits of those visits. And that's pretty much what I had to say. Great. Thank you for your call, R.W. Um, looking at the benefits of visitation outside of the Acadia region. Um, any comments from our guests? Um, I think you have to look at a sort of the, I agree about pluses and minuses, and but you have to look at the long-term picture. And part of the reason Bar Harbor has become, say, more appealing for retirement age people to move there is because our season has expanded 
Restaurants have been able to stay open longer. We have more that stay open year-round. And a lot of that is because the reason cruise ships were invited to Bar Harbor was started in the fall to expand the season so restaurants could stay open longer, shops could stay open longer. So they sort of go hand in hand. The things that make Bar Harbor a really great place to live now because, well, it's always been a great place to live, but there's more restaurants that stay open year-round, more shops, you know, less traffic. It's because of the cruise ships. So I think there is a positive and a negative to it, and it's which is the stronger, I don't know. I am in downtown Bar Harbor, so I would say having cruise ships because I think it really is a part of the economic engine that drives the downtown business. Yeah, Katie, similarly, uh, we haven't uh, looked at the impact of cruise ships in particular, um, but in past years, we've done uh, economic impacts uh, studies. The, the latest from 2016 shows uh, economic impact in the region of $333 million, uh, which uh, support about 4,200 jobs. And uh, in terms of our, our visits from cruise ships, really that's all part of our commercial use and how they access the park and, and the tours that they they get on. So. Uh, while there has been an increase in the fall of those those tours, we've uh, continued to uh, manage them effectively and, and cooperatively with the providers of those services. And the uh, alternative uh, in the transportation plan will will look at um, those uses as well. I also think, and I th- there's a misconception out there that cruise passengers on a bus aren't paying to be in the park because I don't think people really understand and I might not even say it right the commercial vendor use permit or I'm not even sure what it's called but they are paying to be in the park just in a different way than buying a park pass yeah the commercial uh, tours that come to the park have uh, permits from the park and part of that permit system and there's an arrangement for them to pay the entrance fee for their their guests um, based on the size of their vehicle coming into the park uh, for each trip. So presumably a tour operator figures out in their pricing system for those visitors or for those passengers some sort of a system where they're still able to make some cash, but then some of that fee gets passed over to them. Presumably, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can you give give us... uh, both of you a little bit of insight on um, the commercial use in the park and how that correlates with the transportation questions that are coming up. Sure. The um, Again, the commercial users in the park are, are part of our transportation planning process. Um, we have, uh, you know, the, the private vehicle that that uh, is certainly a, a big factor, but we also have to manage the, the number and size and frequency of commercial tours. While uh, they do come on, uh, you know, come into the park in, in uh, buses that, you know, in, in a sense, take cars off the road, we also have to look at the size of that vehicle uh, as, they, as they may or may not fit in the historic road setting and, and the delivery of people to one place at one time. So that sort of congestion issue expands to walkways and uh, restrooms and other services uh, that people are delivered to. 
Um, and what? And then what about in town? Well, um, the buses, commercial buses, the big motor coaches, are of course part of our congestion problem because they have gotten bigger and bigger, and again, our streets are not getting bigger and bigger. So it, you know, that is part of the discussion as well for the, you know, a su- parking solution for downtown. Buses are very much a part of that discussion. Where should they park? Where should they wait? That kind of thing. Um, and the, do you guys have a sense of? Um, one of the questions that often comes up is how much of the economic impact from the increased use uh, stays local versus goes elsewhere. Do you, do either of you have a sense of that piece? I don't have hard numbers. I mean, I can name tour companies that I know are locally mm-hmm. owned. So, yes, that money is staying local. local. A lot of them employ a lot of, uh, especially the tour companies, um, seniors in the area who conduct the tours because of their history and knowledge in the area. So then that's an impact on somebody's job. So it's, I, I couldn't say exactly, but I mean, it's a very important part of the community. Jobs are clearly an important part of the whole tourism industry. So the National Park Service uh, does an annual study of that economic impact from visitation. And the area that we look at is local uh, in a, on a regional basis. So roughly every county within 60 miles of the park is included. So that, that that's pretty local in terms of the impact. And as I mentioned, that's $330 million uh, from 2016 with uh, supporting about 4,200 jobs. Um, so, John, talk a little bit about um, some of the models that the Park Service is maybe looking at. Other places that are maybe other parks that are dealing with these kinds of issues. What are what are some of the things that you guys are paying attention to that that might help shed some light on where to go next for transportation in Acadia? Well, the great thing about uh, being part of the National Park Service is we have a nation of uh, parks and other units that are experiencing similar problems and have uh, tried certain strategies that we are definitely learning from. Haleakala National Park in Hawaii, um, very interestingly similar to Cadillac Summit, uh, instituted a reservation system for their sunrise on the mountain which requires a permit from 3 to 7 a.m. in the morning. And uh, people can make a reservation online, cost $1.50, and they need to you know, print that out and show up uh, in that time period with that permit. So that, you know, that is one example of, of many around the country that we're looking at. And uh, not everything is transferable very easily to Acadia, um, so we have to t- take in consider the local conditions and the local situation, and that's part of what the transportation plan will be doing. Um, so I heard you mention the word reservation. What might that look like? And I, and I, I want to clarify that you guys aren't making any decisions now. You're just looking at options and hoping to continue to hear feedback from residents and visitors alike. Very much. We're probably about a year away from making a decision, and we're going to have uh, much more in, input from the public before we do that. Uh, as I said, we will be coming out with a draft plan and environmental impact statement in spring of 2018, encouraging people to uh, comment online or uh, come to a public meeting if they're local and, and, and give us uh, feedback on that. The uh, a reservation system um, and other management strategies, working with commercial users, expanding the Island Explorer, uh, encouraging um, 
systems such as Uber, where there's an uh, on-demand uh, system where uh, adds to the options for people to access the park without needing a parking space, are all in the mix of uh, the alternatives. The reservation system, again, uh, has not been laid out in any detail, but the idea would be that uh, people would uh, be uh, assured of a parking space at a time and location that they chose, rather than trying to get to an area and not being able to access it. And part of everything that we do in the transportation plan will be to educate people to plan ahead, uh, think ahead, and uh, really know what they're getting into in terms of, of visiting Acadia. Now, if a, a reservation system is implemented, uh, that would mean, uh, you know, again, planning ahead and having that expectation that you'll be able to do what you want, where you want at that time. And so that will ease the, the issue of traffic congestion uh, and parking demand and provide people with an experience where they can, they can access the park without that hassle. Um, and in town, um, and from the perspective of the, the businesses, um, are, would you see sort of similar um, advantages or disadvantages to some of the options that the park is maybe looking at? Um, yes, I think there will be both. But I think um, since it's in the middle of its development, this plan, it's hard to really say what is it that's going to work, what's not going to work. I do think they have to, our transportation, to the town's transportation solutions sort of will dovetail eventually with the park's transportation solutions. I mean, I think they're going to have to. But I think both the town and the park are sort of still in the development and early process of figuring it all out so it's hard to say yes i think a reservation system will work or yes only buses will work i think it's going to be a many pieces to it coming yeah. in stages also i don't think there's any grand solution that's going to land all at one time and solve all of our problems there's a lot of moving parts there's the parks transportation planning process there's the bar harbor town committee looking at parking solutions there's discussions in Bar Harbor about what to do with the ferry terminal property. All these things are fully integrated. Um, in the last couple minutes that we have left, um, I'd like to ask both of you to take a couple minutes to just sort of share where you see this going, um, where you see these discussions going. What are, the, what are the pieces that you might be a little worried about and what are the pieces that you see as opportunities for the town and the park to, to, to move forward? I think um, sort of the pieces that I would say concern me or is the expectation that anything can happen at once, all at once, and it will solve all the problems at once. I do sometimes think people don't see how everything is interconnected and that it's, it's going to be phases and changes will happen slowly. But I do think we are sort of at the... Uh, the base of a pretty significant mountain, but it's all opportunities. It's opportunities to come up with new, creative, good solutions that will benefit everybody. It will benefit the residents, it will benefit visitors, it will benefit the park. I think we just have to make sure we are looking at all the pieces and how they will all come together. Great. Thank you, Martha. Yeah, I have a similar response in that there will be changes, but there will be time as well to, to make those changes. We've, we're taking several years just to develop the ideas to implement, but to implement them will take 
you know, more time, more effort, and uh, a lot of integration with the community and the chamber and, and sharing ways, new ways of, of visiting the park, but for the better. And uh, I think that will, in the end, allow us to accommodate the visitation that we're getting, but in a much better way so that people uh, enjoy the park even more than they are today and come to the towns and uh, enjoy the communities around around the park. And if folks want to um, have their voice heard related to this process, they should go to the Acadia National Park homepage and find the space in that homepage to make comments. Yeah, there's a link to uh, transportation planning on our homepage. Great. Thank you so much. Um, We've come to the end of our coastal conversation today, amazingly, that hour flew. Um, Today we talked about congestion and transportation planning in Acadia National Park and surrounding communities. I'd especially like to thank my guests, John Kelly, Management Assistant of at Acadia National Park, and Martha Searchfield, the Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce, and also really wanted to thank all of our callers. Um, it was great to hear from all of you, really great questions and comments and points that you made, so thanks for taking the time to listen and call in with your voice. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Uh, Next month, we will be looking at marine mammals and the whale mortality events that have happened um, in the region in in the last few months. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located.